0: is Dr. Ethel Tungohan. I'm a writer, a researcher, an associate professor of politics, and an activist. This is Academic Antis. One foot in and one foot out. For many in academia, there's always a certain ambivalence about being here. Historically, institutions have been pretty ambivalent about their presence here too. Academia has traditionally never been a place for those who are black, indigenous, or people of color. As a result, you see over and over again promising scholars leaving academia, either by choice, or because they can't get hired, or because after they are hired, they find the conditions of work so horrific that they leave. There is a leaky pipeline of racialized scholars leaving academia, with research showing that for many of us, structures of systemic racism make it hard to stay. Thus, for many, a pragmatic approach is to have one foot in and one foot out of the academy. That was always the case for me. I wasn't entirely sold on putting all of my eggs in the academic basket. During my PhD studies, I kept one foot outside the academy and kept working, taking on consultancy contracts for NGOs. Although there is an entirely different podcast episode on the parallels between the nonprofit industrial complex and academia, I like working on projects other than my dissertation. I also kept one foot out of the academy by constantly being part of community movements for social change. And I'm not the only one who keeps one foot in and one foot out of the academy. In today's episode, we talk to two of my dear friends, Dr. Siobhan Niles and Dr. Nicole Bernhardt. Both Siobhan and Nicole had found themselves having one foot in and one foot out of the Academy while they pursue their PhDs. They both worked throughout, Siobhan for a nonprofit organization and Nicole as a consultant. Yet, the Academy called them back. In the fall of 2023, they both began tenure-track jobs. In our conversation, which we recorded back in September after their first month on the job, they told me about why they came back and what they're doing to stay true to the values that made them keep one foot out of the academy in the first place. Before we get started,
1: I'll have Siobhan and Nicole introduce themselves. Siobhan? Sure. Uh, My name is Siobhan Niles, she, her. I am a first year assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy, cross-appointed in the into Rehabilitation science Sciences Institute at the University uh, of Toronto. Uh, my work is at the intersection of ableism, racism, and understanding how they're reproduced in education, health, and social services. I am a mom, one that is tired today that has been doing a lot of caregiving work while balancing uh, balancing a full-time demanding job. And I'm also somebody who... That exists within community spaces and it's, it's constantly going back and forth and thinking through you know am I showing up as my authentic self.
2: Nicole. My name's Nicole Bernhardt. My pronouns are she her and I am also in my first year on the TT track <laughs> at the University of Toronto in the Department of Political Science in Scarborough as a professor of public policy. And my research looks at the use of human rights frameworks, policies, and institutions to respond to problems of social inequity, in particular, the problem of racism in policing or racism as policing.
0: Awesome. So let's just kind of dive in. Both of you just finished your first month of, you know, your tenure track positions after how many years on the job market
2: do you do you even know (laughs) oh I know yeah it was for me it was three years okay on the academic job market so starting in 2020 so Mm. 2020 2021 2022 and applying for probably around 10 positions per year
0: holy smokes okay how about you Siobhan
1: so my, my journey is a little different. So I convocated in 2020, but I did not apply for any positions. And I think the, if I'm going to be honest, the reason why is because I was so exhausted when I finished. And mm. I also I didn't know if I was going to get a job coming from education and just, my son had just turned one. There were so Mm. many things that were going on at that time that I said, I felt like I needed to really take a step back from the academy. I feel that sometimes doing a PhD, you get lost. I got lost and I needed a bit of a breather. So because of that, I actually just stayed in the industry. I Mm. worked in the nonprofit sector and I worked throughout my PhD. I actually, I I don't know how, (laughs) but I worked throughout my PhD and I then I saw an opportunity to work in hospital. I applied to a hospital. And then from there, I moved into a school board doing the same equity work that I've always been doing. This was actually my first and only position I applied to. Interesting. And got it, Yay, which is really yes. unique. Yes. Yeah. But I would say that was really intentional also because I didn't feel like I fit into the, what do you call it? Like Ethel and Nicole, like there was a, there's a, there's a model, right? There's a type of person that the academy is always searching for. And whenever I looked at those job postings, I never saw myself. Part of that was imposter syndrome. But part of that is also because I felt that these jobs didn't connect with who I am. And I always felt like if I'm going to move into the academy, I want to be as authentic as possible. So I applied to this job in 2022 and I started it in 2023. That's awesome. Let's talk about unconventional journeys into the academic
0: job market, because Siobhan, I know that you worked throughout your PhD, right? Like it wasn't like, you know, you were 20, like 24 seven, a student, 24 (laughs) seven, a researcher, you had like a full-time job and Nicole, you also were working too, right? Like you were consulting.
2: Oh yeah. No, I worked consistently through the PhD and I actually took a leave from the PhD in order to take on a position as a senior policy advisor with the anti-racism directorate. And so really relate to what Siobhan was saying about not seeing myself as likely to end up with an academic job. And so throughout the time that I was Completing my PhD, I was working both to to pay for a home and you know to to start building a family, but also in order to create this constant possibility of an alternative life for myself outside of academia. Because, as Siobhan put it, I didn't see myself there, and it's you know it's significant that the moment that I started applying for positions was 2020 because it was in the context of global conversations around racial justice that all of a sudden job opportunities within academia started to address, started to name things that sounded like who I am and what sort of work I'm doing. And it was within that context that my supervisor really started pushing me and saying, I think there's space for you here. I think you should finish (laughs) because I hadn't (laughs) finished yet (laughs) at the moment that I was applying. And I, I think the possibility that there was a role for me to play in academia and in academic positions helped me complete.
0: When you say that you didn't feel that there was a space for you in academia, was it because Well, first of all, was academia and based on your kind of experiences in the PhD, did you feel like you fit? And secondly, were the job ads simply written in a way where you're like, this is not this is not what I want to do. This is not my research. This is not who I am. Like what was what was causing this discomfort? So like you,
1: Nicole, I always worked and I always like to use the word choice. Uh, working was not a choice uh, for me mm. as I was doing my PhD. It's something I also I had to do. And uh, being working class, being immigrants to this country, I'm a first generation, you know, first to go to university, first to do get my PhD. And that idea of always being the first, it's something that really it's not something that makes me feel happy. I, it's something I struggle with, but it also is an opportunity. And I try to always view things as an opportunity, but because working was not a choice, I also tried to find the work that aligned with my beliefs. So working at OCASI, I worked at the Ontario Council of Agencies Serving Immigrants, and I led a community education campaign uh, that focused on bringing attention to the needs and challenges newcomers with disabilities experience. So it allowed me to combine my passion for social justice with my desire to be immersed in the literature. So I bridged my academic and my community work, and it allowed me to also sustain myself. I felt that because I had part of myself in the academy, part of myself in the community, I always was able to stay grounded. But because I was co-located, I don't think folks saw me as an academic. While in the community, I was seen as uh, having a voice, having agency, and and I would say uh, some authority that didn't translate over into academic spaces because um, I, I didn't have all the publications. I didn't go to all the conferences, but I had resources that, that I co-created. I had workshops that um, I co-created and co-led. So that knowledge that was created, that amazing knowledge that was generated uh, within the community didn't see wasn't seen as being valued. And like Nicole, that didn't come until much later, until after 2020, mm. where I started to have more mentors. And these men- mentors were m- mostly Black and racialized women that said to me, you know, you could do really well in the academy. Have you seen yourself here? And I said, yeah, but, and I was afraid to admit that this is where I wanted to be, but I don't think other people saw me here. And the job postings weren't written in a way that showed that they valued people with lived experience. Is. And that lived experience uh, is not just lived experience, but it's rooted within scholarship. It's it's rooted within these amazing theoretical frameworks that
2: came before what we think of now. I mean, um, the reason why I would describe myself as not necessarily seeing a place for me in academia, I think it's, it's very different in some instances, Siobhan, from your experience, because I'm not first generation in graduate studies. So my father is a PhD holder. My mom is a human rights and labor lawyer who went on to be one of the first Black arbitrators in Ontario. All four of my grandparents have university degrees from Ontario, which is really unusual considering that two of them are Black and two of them are women, that these were, these were not easily available to them at the time. But a lot of the the first in my family came before me and yet despite mm. the fact that i came from professional and academic parents which should have made it more natural or easy for me to find a fit within graduate studies and within academic work when i was doing my masters in philosophy Years ago, I thought that that was my terminal degree. That would be it. Because my experiences in that program, doing that degree, trying to take up questions of social justice, trying to take up questions of race, it was so inhospitable to the sort yeah. of discussions that I was interested in having that I thought this is not a space for me and that's how I, I went and I established a professional career. I went and worked and had experiences working in government and it was through those experiences that I thought you know I also feel really critical about some of the things that are happening yeah. in this context and um, academia is a space where you're invited to engage in critique, where you're able to ask the sort of structural questions that were that were getting me um, as someone who was working in a government position. And so I, I wanted to return to academia. I wanted to return in a different discipline. I wanted to look at political science, and I continued to be invested in questions about race and racism and structural inequities. And even though I was part of a department that's very engaged in questions of structural inequities, conversations of race were not easy to find, and support for those conversations were challenging. And so, and so because of that, I, I, I felt like I had one foot in and one foot out the entire time I did my doctoral degree. And that's why it took me as long as it did to complete.
0: I think what's really interesting as both of you were talking is both of you suddenly saw a space in academia after there was, quote-unquote, a racial reckoning in 2020, right? And that's when these job ads started popping up. We want community-engaged work. We want socially engaged work. We want scholars who can look at issues of race. I saw an explosion of job ads, right? And I felt that that was an opening that years later, I feel like it's going to start closing again, right? Like, it's a response to, to this global Racial reckoning, and yet it seems to me as though that's not going to be sustainable through the next few years. I can actually see some of these like positions just, just like shutting down, right? Like universities aren't necessarily invested anymore in creating these positions. But for both of you, it seemed to me as though Based on what you said, that kind of made you go, oh, these are ads where we can finally kind of latch onto. And so I guess, Nicole, you kind of were hinting at that in your in your response in your last question. I still feel like, why academia then? Because both of you have done important work in OCASI, in the hospital, as a consultant, in the community. And maybe I've just been so entrenched in academia for
2: so long, but I'm like, I don't know, why are you coming back? Like- I mean, I got asked that question by hiring committees <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> um, and, I, and I was really nervous about where they were coming from when they asked me that. But I do think that there's space within academia to engage in critical questions and to take time and think in a way that there's not necessarily space allowed for that sort of reflection and criticism in a lot of other work and especially like unlike uh, i've done i was going to say unlike Siobhan, but that's not true i've i've done a lot of community based work and i've been invited by organizations to Develop frameworks within community spaces, but I also have this experience of working for government, and government is very reactive and responsive to what the loudest demand for attention is at that moment. And in that environment, the sort of contemplation and critical analysis, or or you know, in <laughs> bringing in theory, is yeah. not always welcome. And yeah. and I think that is that is something really wonderful about academia, taking that theory and that work and connecting it with communities by doing community engaged research, like I know both of you do, I think is one of the like more joyful areas of academia. For me,
1: um, I, (laughs) well, I so I, I loved being, I loved my time at Ocassie. I was there for almost nine years. And I think Ocassie is my foundation for everything that I do in my life. I genuinely, genuinely believe that because they showed me how to do social justice work the right way. Not just from the work that I did, but from the people that, you know, I met. And as you know, one of our best friends comes from Ocassie, And <laughs> I, I, I learned so much from, <laughs> shout out Kritika, right? I learned so much from her. But uh, for me, i I find that whether it was at a school board or being in community or at the hospital, I find that sometimes I felt really confined. Mm. I want to think, I want to be able to create. And I want, the word I'm going to use is freedom. And I'm not saying the academy is free, but I'm just, but for me, it's just, I found that I, I felt confined within these boxes because just like every job, there's this description of your roles and your responsibilities. And if I wanted to do, and I found myself doing things outside of my roles, my assigned roles, my assigned responsibilities. And I found that really difficult. I also, I, I think that we live theory. We live and breathe theory each and every single day. And for me, I was like, in the academy, I... I'm not just able to share knowledge. I'm able to learn. I am somebody who loves, loves to learn. And I feel that even though I am exhausted, <laughs> I would not want to be anywhere else. I just love the idea of writing my own story and, and, and being a, a vessel in which stories can be told using these critical social theories. So, and then lastly, it's just the opportunity to inform the next generation. And I, you know, being in a school board, being in the hospital and being in community, I, I see the value of people like us actually teaching, working with students. And, and in my, my last class on Monday, I had Black and racialized students approach me and said that was like one of the first time they felt seen, they felt visible uh, because all of the folks that came in, all the guest speakers were Black and racialized women. And that's probably, that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to be in this space. I didn't have it growing up in Canada. I didn't meet someone like me who's biracial, who's from Guyana until I was finishing my PhD. And I don't want my kids to feel like that. And even though I know it's not gonna be easy, that's one of the things that drives me. And I would also say the ability to own my own knowledge. That's that's a big one. I wanna own my own knowledge.
0: I know, right? (laughs) A hundred percent. So let's talk about race, right? Because yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Siobhan, one thing that you said that really resonated with me and something I've had to consciously figure out how to navigate in my own in my own work is that we can't help how we look like, right? But I think it's called the Obama effect. Like, you know, you're teaching a class, say on like Canadian politics, you talk about like race once and then you get your student evals and they're like, oh, this class was all about race. And you're like, okay, it's not, right? And people assume that, you're just personalizing the issue, that you're just putting in your own vendetta, right? But I'm also curious to see, since both of you are in disciplines that haven't conventionally dealt with race and issues of race and diversity and disability, how did you navigate that? Like, how did you make sure that you're legible to colleagues who may not understand the relevance
1: of your work? I have a way that I approach this and I credit my supervisor, Dr. Lance McCready. And he taught me that I'm not there to teach anyone anything they're not ready to hear. He -hmm. said, you're there to do your job. You're there to present different ways of thinking, being, and knowing. And it is up to your students to determine what they do with that knowledge. And he told me this after I I got called reverse racist um, when I was a PhD <gasps> a candidate oh and I was teaching uh, teachers, I was teaching uh, teacher candidates and I had a white student, young man come up to me after class and yelled at me and told me I was reverse racist Jeez. for talking about white supremacy. And I found that to be incredibly scary, uncomfortable. And it also made me feel like I never want to teach again <laughs> and yeah. he said, no, that's, that's how, you know, they win. That's how the system wins. And then by him telling me that, it changed the way that I approached my teaching and the way that I, I understood how I would always be read in these spaces, that whatever I teach is reflective of who I am. So I state that up front. I said, I can't change how I look, I can't change how you're gonna take this lecture. But I am going to teach these concepts because they're important for you to know. Just like we talk about disability, just like we talk about sexism, just like we talk about sexual orientation, we talk about different identities, we have to talk about race. And the issue is not race, the issue is racism.
2: I find it an interesting moment to be having these conversations because I spent so much of my academic graduate career trying to insist on the salience of race. And the salience of racism and structural inequities in terms of how we understand policy decisions, in terms of how we understand the institutions that we're part of. And there was scholarship that I could draw on, but not a ton of it within our discipline, right, Ethel? No. (laughs) We're both political scientists. And so, you know, like... Deborah Thompson so, you know, significantly asked, is race political? And and that, that article was a really key moment, I think, in Canadian political scientists thinking about the ways in which race holds salience in terms of how this country is structured and how decisions are made. But now we're in a different moment, which is, I think, tied to a lot of these hires. It's there is increasing recognition that racism is significant in terms of how we understand systems working and all of a sudden an acknowledged dearth in a number of institutions of scholars who take up these questions because historically this has not been something that institutions were interested in hiring for or looking for. Mm. And so I find it really interesting when the term like diversity hire circulates because mm. I think there's an important point to be made around the extent to which almost every hire aims at diversity. Mm. And what I mean by that is almost every hire is based on an evaluation that a department does of their own research strengths mm-hmm. and of their own teaching strengths and where the gaps exist. For sure. And what folks who have been taking up critical scholarship for all this time and in a context where we were working with an absence of scholars who could support our work, we have now been poised 2020 onward to respond to these attempts by departments to diversify. And so we are now in a position to apply for positions where they say we're looking for someone who can have conversations about racialization. We're looking for someone who can teach about systems that respond to racial discrimination. Now we're in a moment to fill that void only because we worked in the absence of that sort of support ourselves and you made the point ethel earlier that it's the case that some of these positions might disappear and i think they've already yeah. started to disappear some of these positions were never filled they bumped up against their own institutional challenges to to bring these positions to fruition
0: There seems to be a lack of thought on the institution's part to think beyond hiring diverse faculty, right? It's like, oh, let's respond to this racial reckoning by opening up these jobs for more racialized faculty. And that's it. That's all they've thought about, right? They haven't thought about the process. They haven't thought about supports. They haven't thought about retention, right? What advice would you give our listeners who are kind of embedded in both worlds and who are just like, we're not sure about academia. We're not sure we're ready to, to fully commit to one lane. And I think from this conversation, you don't have to, right? Like Mm -hmm. you don't have to commit to one lane, right? Like what advice would you give listeners who were perhaps where you were three or four years ago, who just aren't sure whether academia is for them and just are
2: uncertain about this? I would say that maybe that's a great place to go into the interview process with is rather than having a belief that the only the only future for you is one in which you're an academic professor going into interview processes, knowing that there is an alternative world where you're also okay and you're good. And so yeah. that when you're participating in interview processes, they are evaluating you, but you're also evaluating them. Mm. And you're asking whether or not this place is going to be receptive to who I am, and what I stand for, and what I'm committed to. And if the is no, like if that's the sense that you're getting, It's not worth it.
0: Can I just interject? I love that, right? And that's something I've tried to tell other people as well. We usually assume the interview process is one-sided, but let's get real here. You're also sussing them out. They would be lucky to have you. And... You can ask questions, right? Like, you know, at the end of the interview, do you have any questions? You know, you could ask questions and you could also ask graduate students, other folks who you meet during the day, what's it like? Another common advice that I've been given that I've also given to other people, especially in departments that aren't as diverse. Like, you may want to email, if you feel comfortable, professors who are racialized or who you feel might have special insights into the workings of the department and maybe ask them, do you mind having a coffee or whatever, right? Because then you'll get a sense of what the department's really like. And so, yeah, I love that, Nicole. Like, you're also interviewing them. You're also seeing if they deserve you, right?
2: Um, yeah, and I heard from a couple graduate students in the interview processes that I don't know that you'll like it here. Oh, they said that. Yes, <laughs> not <laughs> not where I not where I currently am, but in in positions that I did not accept or positions that you know I was not offered. Other other stops I made along the way, I did hear that this might this might not be such a great place to either live or this institution's not such a wonderful one to work. And it's usually the graduate students who will tell you that.
0: Absolutely. Grad students know the (laughs) truth. (laughs) Siobhan, what advice will you give?
1: I'll say this is something I, I live by now, which is you don't have to just be in one place. I'm still completely embedded within community-based research and work. I still do work on the ground. And um, and I live by this too. And I say this to prospective students all the time. It's important to do work that feeds your soul because mm. I've done work that does not feed my soul. And, but I, that's a privilege, right? It, not everyone can choose that. But if you can, and if you're willing, I think it's really important to work in different spaces. If you choose the academy, I do think it enriches your experience and the academy is so, is so much richer for it. Uh, when you bring those different uh, perspectives, those different ideas, and you get to meet different people, you also see how your work connects on the ground and connects in different spaces and can have impact in different spaces. And, and I think, like Nicole said, if you can, uh, know that you don't have to choose, because I know now, you know, if it doesn't work out, I can go back in community, I can work at a hospital or a board because I know there's so many spaces for people like me that do what I do. So I would say imagine the possibilities, mm-hmm. not the limitations limitations and and out to the amazing, again, Black and racialized women that taught me that because I had to learn that. Thank you both so much. This was so wonderful. Thank you, Ethel. Thank you.
0: You know, we talk a lot about what is wrong about academia on this podcast, but Siobhan and Nicole also remind me about why our jobs in higher education matter. They came back because... Much as academia can be a dumpster fire we've talked a lot about an Academic Antis, academia is also a space where we can theorize and research and create and teach others to do the same. In a time when academia is under attack by neoliberal far-right forces that see critical thought as being incredibly threatening, we cannot take our ability to do so for granted. It is imperative that we keep maintaining our academic freedom to research and explore questions that force us to think and do and believe otherwise. Contrary to what conservative politicians believe, and here I'm thinking of far-right ideologues such as Ron DeSantis in Florida or Daniel Smith in Alberta who are defunding academic programs, the role of education is to show all of us new ways of thinking and understanding the world that can lead to our collective emancipation. For me, remembering academia's emancipatory goals and not being co-opted by academic neoliberal imperatives keeps me going practice, maintaining one foot in and one foot out of the academy remains important. Always keeping one foot in the community and being part of Global Struggles for Justice keep me accountable and remind me that the work that I do in the academy should always be aligned with community justice. And that's Academic Anties. If you like this podcast and are interested in ways to support it, please go to slash support to find out how you can help keep this pod going. You can also become a Patreon supporter. All of your generous donations help us cover our production costs. Huge shout out to our newest Patreon, Haiyan, for your support. Thank you so much. If you want to connect, reach out to us at podcast at academicantes.com. You can also find us on social media. We're at AcademicAnte on Twitter or X, <laughs> and at Academic Aunties everywhere else. Today's episode of Academic Anties was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tunkohan, and produced by myself, Win Chu, and Dr. Anisha Nath. Tune in next time as we talk to more academic aunties. Also, in our next episode, we will be sharing exciting news about our Feminist Killjoy book club and how you can enter a draw to get a free copy of Sara Ahmed's awesome new book. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.